1: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Language, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Keith Kahn-Harris about his new book, The Babel Message, A Love Letter to Language. Keith is a London-based sociologist and writer who combines freelance writing with an academic teaching and research career. Keith Kahn-Harris, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me on, Nathan.
1: Keith, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Um, well, I, I've had a fairly complicated career. I, I started off with academia. I still have a foot in academia, but it's not the only thing I do. Uh, I have a PhD in sociology, and that was the sociology of the global extreme heavy metal music scene and I've taught at quite a few different universities, but I was never content just to have one research area. So even while I was doing my PhD, I ended up doing research in the UK Jewish community, which is a community I'm part of, and I'm interested in doing research within it. And so for a long time, my My career post-PhD was on two tracks, the the heavy metal track and the Jewish track. And I still write and publish on those things. Uh, But over the last 10, 15 years, I've started to develop alongside that a freelance writing career, writing for publications uh, that aren't academic, although I still do academic work. And this, The Babel Message, is my seventh book. The last two or three books before that were kind of crossover books between academic and more popular, and this one is my first book that is targeted specifically outside an academic audience, although it does draw on, and I I, I hope wears quite lightly uh, uh, some my my knowledge of uh, sociolinguistics. Uh, social theory and philosophy, as well as linguistics as well.
1: So this is quite a departure from Jewish studies and heavy metal. So can you tell us how you came to write The Babel Message?
0: Yeah, it is quite a departure. Um, This book has its origins in something I did in 2017. There's an annual conference in London. It's kind of a speaker event, really, called The Boring Conference, uh, it hasn't happened for the last two years since due to the pandemic, but it's a wonderful event organized by a guy called James Ward uh, that features speakers talking about um, things that seem to be boring but are in fact not. So, you might, there was a speaker one year who talked about lifts, for example. There was another one who talked about roundabouts. And it, it's really it's called the Boring Conference, but it's actually the reverse. And I'd spoken there before, but in 2017, I decided to do a talk on something that had caught my eye a few years ago, which is the the piece of paper that you find inside Kinder Surprise Eggs that gives the a warning not to give the product to under threes in many, many different languages. I should say here for any American listeners or people who in countries where Kinder Surprise eggs aren't available there are a there a chocolate egg with a yellow capsule within that contains a small self-assembly toy they're very popular around the world but in some countries they're not allowed most uh, most famously America because in America there are regulations that you can't put in an inedible object inside an edible object Anyway, so I found there were more than 30 languages and I started digging into them to really as a way with playing playing with it, really, the warning message sheet. Um, And I was also interested in what wasn't there. So I commissioned some translations into other languages and some of them, there was quite a serious point, you know, like, so I got a translation into Welsh. Uh, because to show that uh, whilst Welsh is is the, uh, the the language of several hundred thousand people in Wales, you it, it, while it does have a public presence in in Wales, it it's almost never on these kind of products that are produced by multinational corporations, and that leads to sort of questions about. Uh, the nation state and language and, and and multinational capitalism, but I also did some some that were just fun and a bit silly. So I commissioned a translation into biblical Hebrew. Uh, the year the talk went down pretty well, and the year after that, I recorded it as a podcast uh, for what's called the BBC Boring Talks series. Which was basically talks from the boring conference turned into podcasts. So that was 2018, I, and, and this was this wasn't really part of my work. This was just a fun thing to do. Uh, but during lockdown in 2020, I had this enormous urge to do something because my research has been on very some quite serious stuff. So my last two books were, was on anti-Semitism and on denialism. But I wanted to do something that was life-affirming and fun. And so I started off just commissioning more of these translations uh, into all kinds of languages, just for the sheer hell of it. Uh, But after a while, I realized that there was probably a book in it. And so I wrote a proposal. I sent it to an agent. The agent took me on and managed to find a publisher. And now it's out. It's been out since november twenty twenty one I'm still slightly in shocked about in shock about it that that this could actually happen
1: no, that's a great that's a great journey um and one thing I learned from you on the way, which um was news to me was that the yellow egg was meant to represent the oak
0: indeed yes i it wasn't me who realized that I found that online i mean it's Look, I, I, I always have to clarify when I talk about this book that I, I'm actually fairly neutral about Kinder Surprise Eggs, at, at the very least on sustainability grounds. I mean, because, you know, these are plastic toys that certainly from the experience of giving to, to my own kids, they're very ephemeral. They're usually thrown away. They give a few minutes of, uh, of, of amusement. But taking something really, really mundane within that and then looking at it looking at it with microscopic detail and then kind of expanding it so that it takes on big themes about what language is and and how we should value language that's really what i'm interested in is is and and that that's partly comes from my sociological background in that one thing that was impressed with me when i was learning when I was doing graduate studies at Goldsmiths College in the 1990s was the importance of the mundane and to not just look at the uh, the most obviously glamorous and difficult or sexy topics, but to also look at the mundane details through which the world is reproduced. And so in that respect, the pro- the whole project is rooted in my sociological concerns to do just that, to look at the mundane
1: Oh, thanks, Keith. I, I think the interesting thing here is, someone who lives in a bilingual area is that far from being mundane, language is a fraught and very political area. Would you like to tell us how your book? Yeah, no, I'm not out? saying
0: the. Well, I mean that is, I'm I'm not saying that language is mundane so much as the this particular piece of paper is mundane. But of course, it, there's a duality to language, and, and we know this from the social sciences uh, as well, that on the one hand, that the language is something that is reproduced continually within each interactional event without being consciously thought about. And it is embedded in the fabric of everyday life. Uh, But on the other hand, language is also an issue that touches on fundamental questions about how society is organized and in particular in, in the modern period the relationship between state and language the relationship between the national community and language and the process of nationalism in, in, since since the the uh, 18th century at least but with roots going back much longer has often been a process of Uh, marginalising certain languages that are seen to threaten the unitary uh, authority of the state and the unitary nature of a national language. So uh, the the revival of Welsh over the last few decades has been wonderful to see. Uh, But there was a systematic and conscious effort to marginalise Welsh, uh, particularly in the education system, for a very long time. I know that your kids... Uh, go to I, they go to a bilingual school, right? That's right. Yes. I know that you yourself, I mean, you've, you're from London originally, but at Bangor University, you've you've learnt Welsh as well. I'm not sure whether you were required to learn it or whether it would just felt like the right thing to do, given that Welsh is spoken around you.
1: Um, yeah, it was the latter, um, and it gives yeah, my kids um, more choice in education.
0: Yeah, and this is this is a new thing. If you'd moved to Bangor University. 50 or 60 years ago, you almost certainly wouldn't have learnt Welsh unless you were particularly interested in Welsh culture and the Welsh language. Um, because one of the things with the revival of Welsh is that it's becoming embedded in everyday life as a mundane thing, uh, despite the fact that it, it also has major political issues around it. But its success, you can see in the fact that it is, it, it, it's also has a degree of normalcy it's not a state of exception in the same way that it that it once was i mean well maybe you you, you i'm seeing it with too seeing too rosy a picture maybe you experience it differently i don't know
1: <laughs> that's a debate for another time but but to focus on the book would you like to take us through um how you sort of proceeded f- uh, through the book in in uncovering these languages and these discussions
0: well, the, the structure of it is of the book is that I start with this what I call the manuscript, this sheet of paper, uh, and and l- give a close eye on it, and then I expand outwards to uh, uh, to the world. <laughs> uh, I start by looking at what this sheet of paper is, what languages are on it, what languages are not on it, and then go and uh, commission more translations into all sorts of other languages. Um, and it gets a bit crazier and crazier in a way, uh, particularly the, the chapter where I create my own language to do that, or the chapter where I get it translated into things like ancient Egyptian. Uh, but there is a serious purpose or rather there are several serious purposes to the book. It is actually, it's a, it's, hopefully an amusing and playful book, but it's also a serious book, hopefully with that seriousness worn fairly lightly, Um, in that it is about um, appreciating the languages that you don't understand, not seeing languages that you don't speak or can't read as some kind of reproach, but to seeing the sounds of language that you don't understand, and the the, the the scripts within which they are written as things of beauty, as things to value in and of themselves, regardless of whether you can understand them or not. And in fact, I even go further, and I suggest that there is a value to incomprehension uh, that is massively underrated. So I kind of overturn the Babel myth, which says that which treats the dawn of human conflict as a result of God uh, 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 turning our one human language into many languages, I suggest that there is a value to not knowing exactly who the other is and that it is possible to value the other to marvel at their ability to speak and to speak in ways that are incomprehensible to you. Certainly, Anyone, it, it 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 often seems a kind of miracle when you look at some scripts particularly something like Chinese if you don't speak Chinese and you think isn't it amazing that hundreds of millions of people throughout the world billions in fact can understand this incredibly complicated set of characters and that's something to marvel at whether or not we can actually read chinese or not
1: yeah one thing I'd certainly appreciated was just the full range of um scripts of iconography
0: um, that you reproduced in the book. Um, it's quite amazing. Yeah, I mean, some of them are just are beautiful to look at. My favourite is probably uh, Tibetan script, which I think is a, just gorgeous to look at. And it's used in the book to do a translation into a language called Dzongkha, which is the national language of Bhutan. And I don't care that it's a Monday message. I care that this is a thing of beauty. And, and perfect in and of itself, if you like. No, I think using
1: the message or the manuscript, I, I, I love the use of that term throughout the book is is a very interesting way into a deeply serious um, and deep subject.
0: I mean, there's so, also sociolinguistics in it is, is that I'm as interested in the decisions that were made as to what to exclude. And you can and you can trace this, the kind of the the politics of language through this mundane piece of paper because there is an online archive created by collectors, uh, what I call the codex in the book, which includes the warning message sheet going back to the late 1980s, and through it you can read uh, the fall of the, the, the fall of Yugoslavia, how gradually all these different languages emerged onto this piece of paper and you could also see in the in the manuscript how what is what is a fundamental point that that i think in, in, in linguistics but one that is sometimes not widely enough known is the decision to call something a language and to see it as a distinctive thing different from something else is a political decision the decision to see Serbian and Croatian as different is a decision made by Serbians and Croatians. I'm not criticizing that decision. Uh, It's the same as in, and it doesn't necessarily have to involve armed conflict. Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish are very similar to each other, but they're there as separate messages because of political, uh, because of political realities, because of the development of the complex history of the nation state. But at the same time, time, the, as, as I was talking about with, with regard to Welsh, you could make what I think is an important political point by translating this message into the languages that have been marginalised by the nation-state, because there are a huge number of endangered languages in the world. Not all because they've been suppressed. Sometimes it's for other reasons, but sometimes it's because of suppression. So, for example... Um, you, you could look at the linguistic history of France and compare it to Spain. In Spain, there are these regional languages like Catalan or Basque that are spoken by many people in within autonomous communities. Not autonomous enough for some people there, uh, but certainly if you compare Spain to France, which has one of the strongest commitments to linguistic unification, and, you, and if you compare... Catalan in Spain with Occitan in France, both of which are closely related, although not identical languages, you can see the effect on this. The Occitan uh, could have been spoken by millions of people. It's the language of of the south of France, although it comes in multiple variants. But it's currently an endangered language that is that, that whilst there's some very spirited activists there, it's spoken by a few tens of thousands compared to the millions of Catalan uh, that speak Catalan. And so putting Occitan, showing what a Monday message looks like in Occitan allows us to think about what would it have been like if that post-revolutionary French linguistic unification hadn't happened if 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 the the if there had to be many more languages on this warning message sheet, which of course would have been a headache for the people who make Kinder Surprise eggs.
1: So you refer to an online database. Um, there are there are other fans of the manuscript, but are you the first to study it academically?
0: Well, it's really interesting. So there is a very big and vibrant Kinder Surprise collector subculture, and they collect various different things. Uh, about the egg the, most people who collect collect the uh uh either either or both of the the toys themselves or the piece of paper that comes with the toy that tells you how to assemble it it's usually got a cartoon on it that's called the b bpz uh that stands for the pack oh, i can't remember what it is it's a german word because germany is the global center of kinder surprise collector subculture it's a very big deal there but there are people not many people who collect these warning messages because there are people who collect anything and they were scanned and put online and catalogued and all sorts of things but i noticed something extraordinary when i looked at this archive which must have taken which definitely took years to assemble and just painstakingly put them online and there are all these if there's all these Sort of, for example, tracking uh, mistakes in printing and alternate versions and stuff. But what none of these collectors had actually done is to actually look at the languages in which it was, in which they were in, uh, and actually look at the content of the messages themselves. So one extraordinary thing on what I call the codex is um, they there's on the on the manuscript. There is an Arabic message and a Persian message, but it's but on the codex they say call it Arabic message one, Arabic message two. There's also a uh, two versions of the Chinese message: one in traditional characters used in Taiwan and Hong Kong, and the other in simplified characters which are used in uh, People's Republic of China. And on the codex they just put it as Chinese message one, Chinese message two. So I I can. Probably, definitively, state that I'm the first person who's actually looked at this in detail, and 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 looked at its idiosyncrasies. And it's possible, and I don't want to get too arrogant here, that I probably looked at it in more detail than the people, the nameless people, who actually put it together, um, because. I discovered at a very late stage, so there's only a bit of it in the book, but I, I've expanded upon it later, there are actually mistakes on it, uh, on this sheet, which may seem trivial to, to outsiders, but I think they're very revealing. So, for example, the, the diacritics on the Estonian translation are wrong. Uh, there are some accidental ligatures on the Azerbaijani message. Again, it seems trivial to the outsiders, although perhaps not to Azerbaijani people and Estonians. But I've looked back in time, and these mistakes have been on there for multiple iterations of this message, of this manuscript going back years. And what that tells you is that the corporation that produced this, Ferrero, are assembling this without too much attention to detail. And because no one seems to have reported this to them, that people aren't actually necessarily reading it that closely, which, of course, makes it quite ironic because this whole sheet is designed to warn people about something. It's there as much for legal reasons uh, 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 as any any other. But it constitutes, and this is where with my sociological hat on or, or maybe my semiotician's hat, I don't know, It constitutes a fascinating issue, is that when you produce, companies will spend enormous amount of time and money and research on branding, on working out what works and what's going to grab the attention of the target market. But Ferrero, who made make it a surprise, they've got a complex problem here. Because on the one hand, it's, it's designed for children, yet it also has to appeal to parents who will buy it to their children. But they've also got to ensure that the parents take care. And that warning to take care detracts from the branding message. So what you end up with is this sort of liminal text, the warning message sheet that is both there to be paid attention to and to be ignored, hence the mistakes, which you probably wouldn't find on the more uh, eye-catching outer foil. One of the things I think the book tries to suggest is that we sometimes think of multinational corporations as these sort of global behemoths crushing everything in their path. But they also have to conform to the way the world is as well. They have to f- pull off awkward compromises. Um, they are constrained in ways that may, uh, that may look trivial but are actually quite important. Uh, and so the book kind of suggests that we can take ownership of these multinationals in some respect by paying attention to the things that they would rather not pay attention to. And I'm not talking about investigative journalism, talking about third world working conditions. I'm talking about the stuff that's there, that's hidden in plain sight.
1: Just to go back to the mistakes, did did they change the meaning of the message at all? Uh,
0: Not that I can see, because they're mistakes in typography and whilst Estonian they, they include Estonian with macrons rather than tildes the tilde is the nja, uh, the the thing above the n in the word Hispania and you have them on certain vowels in Estonian the macron is a straight line above the uh, 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 above a letter that you find in a language like uh, Latvian so they put If you put a macron on Estonian vowels, it's just not, it it, it doesn't signify anything. It's just, it it doesn't change the meaning in in that sense. It just becomes slightly nonsensical and poorly written. But there are differences in meaning between the messages. For one thing, not all of them include the three year age limit. But there are also questions about, subtler questions about translation, such as some of the warnings. They start with the word "warning," and others start with a word that means something like "attention." And those are sub- su- subtly different words. Um, and one of the big uh, big questions in translation is whether translation is is actually possible, or to what extent translation is possible. And this is a case study in that: is does the it does does a word like "attention" versus a word like "warning." what does that do to meaning and how it is experienced?
1: Another thing that struck me as you were talking was, um, have, you, have you spoken to or any plans to speak to any of the nameless people behind the message? Uh,
0: uh, well, that's a bit of a sore point. <laughs> uh, Ferrero are a famously secretive corporation, not necessarily because they've got anything much to hide or at least you know they don't seem to be much worse than any other global corporation Uh, but they're still a family-owned company even though they're enormous and that means they don't they can they're not quite as pressurized in being publicly into being publicly accessible as a publicly owned company might be so i did obviously go to the to the uk press office and said i'm really interested in this can you put me in touch with the department that makes it and the answer to that was no um and i tried someone else i tried the uk ferrero's uk head of public affairs who i noticed um have been involved in the european federal movement so i thought he's going to get this book he's going to love the linguistic diversity thing he said no i can't help you um and then i tried more underhand means i actually paid for a subscription pay I, I did upgrading my linkedin subscription to a paid one not many people do that one of the things you can do with that is that you can send messages to anyone you want and i looked i i found i tried dozens of different not maybe not dozens but a lot of different job titles and uh, to sort of to uh, um you can could, you could filter the results by company worked for so I sent I sent messages to people who might work for for Ferrero who had job titles that seemed to conform to do this. No result with that. I then did a search for people who used to work for Ferrero uh, <laughs> to see if I can find someone to respond. One person got back to me said, no I had no involvement in that. The closest I got was. On the Ferreros International website, they forgot to take down, and I don't know why it's doing there in the first place, a PDF proof of the outer fall of the Kinder Surprise Egg plus the warning message. And it was it's credited to cor- corporate uh, the corporate headquarters of Ferreros in Luxembourg, and it's credited to a company called Colorbox Luxembourg, which no longer exists. And it also gives the name of the opérateur, so presumably the typographic machine. So I found this person. I tracked him down through LinkedIn, and he works for a personalized number plate company in Luxembourg. And uh, I said to him, were you involved in this? He said, yes, I'm happy to answer any questions. I sent him some questions, and then he never responded again. (laughs) He probably thought I was nuts. You know, this is not the sort of work you do in that you expect either credit or outside scrutiny. It's just completely bizarre thing to do. And so these are nameless, nameless individuals. We know nothing about them. We don't know if the translators were in-house. We don't know if they were commissioned externally. We don't know who typeset it. We don't know who designed it. We know nothing. It's, it's as big a mystery as any other in the world, maybe.
1: So maybe with this, um, I mean, it sounds like investigative journalism to me, uh, this part of it. But but maybe with what you've done is you you will hold these people to account in the future um, for when they uh, make mistakes.
0: Yeah, that's not something that Ferrero would welcome, I'm sure. I, I mean, also on a more practical level, I'm sure that anybody who works there has, you know, can't speak publicly about their work. But I was hoping I'd find someone to speak off the record. You said it's like investigative journalism. It's unsuccessful investigative journalism. I'm sure that Woodward and Bernstein would have managed to track down uh, the people involved in it.
1: Well, even they met with dead ends, didn't
0: they? I'm sure they did, yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> um, you just said a few moments ago that you know, this is a bit nuts. How did the people you approach for translations um, receive the project and your requests?
0: Well, it was one of the most lovely things. And that's one of the reasons why it was so great to do it in lockdown, because it was, it was reaching out to the world. And um, the vast majority of people said, sure, why not? <laughs> and did it. Some of them thought the idea was brilliant and hilarious. Others were a bit bamboozled, but still helped me. Uh, The vast majority of people said yes. There were some de facto refusals of people that just never got back to me, and I hit some dead ends. So, for example, I never managed to get a Faroese translation. tried about five different people emailing cold from websites and stuff. Never managed to get one. Um, But it was lovely. People really liked the project, and there were also people – who like spoke at my book launch? Who are activists for endangered languages? And really, really got it, and that was a lovely thing. So there was a guy who spoke at my book launch who's a who's an activist for a South Estonian language called Võro, which is endangered, and I gave and this gave me the opportunity to say something about the language to the world, to say I exist. Uh, that said, um. I did have problems in one area that caused me to rethink, which is I tried to get translations into First Nation languages in, in, in the Americas. And I didn't have much success. And then I started to think, you know, maybe there's something a little dodgy about this, doing this. And, and, and I, as I say in the book, I, I came across a, a website, a Native American language website that had this fact that said that clearly questions they're asked all the time, which is, can you find a name for my dog in Cherokee or whatever it was? You know, can you give me uh, my spirit animal name? And I started to think, you know, this could be viewed as patronizing, even though it didn't have any intent like that. Particularly for people who are still, who have date inda- who, who, who are people who've experienced colonialism uh, and massacre and sometimes genocide and denigration of who they are and who their languages are, that they might have caused to be suspicious. So I sort of throttled back in that direction and stopped asking people though although in the end i did get some i've got um because there's some first nation languages that are well enough established that it didn't feel patronizing so for example i've got a maori translation in the book now maori is being used more and more in new zealand it's used in official contexts so it doesn't have that sense of fragility that some first nation languages have uh, I also I got got translation into Guarani, which is the an official language in uh, Paraguay, and I did get a lang- uh, a translation for one indigenous Australian language, um, which is currently in the process of being revived. But after that, I I I thro- I, I I left it at that because I didn't want to insult the Cherokee people or the Apache people or stuff like that. And I recognize that there was a risk of doing so.
1: And it's probably early to ask, but how has the reception of the book been?
0: I think as far as I can tell, most people seem to get it <laughs> or at least seem to find it, the the central conceit of it, charming. And, uh, f- find the uh, take me at face value in the sense that I said this was a a passion project I enjoyed it and it was a celebratory project and that seems to come through. The more serious messages in the book, I'm not entirely sure how far those have had an impact but that's okay. Sometimes you uh, you can make a point implicitly without making it explicitly. So I guess so far so good. I haven't had any insults yet or anything like that. I did, however, have a... There are a couple of mistakes, though, which were very nicely pointed out to me. Um, so, but, but those were good faith mistakes, so no harm done.
1: Maybe the insults will come in, in a language you can't yet read.
0: <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe so.
1: Um, so towards the end of the book, you, you have a go at, at, at making up a language, right? You can, can you tell us
0: more yeah. about that? Well, there's a whole chapter on what, what's uh, what's called const- conlangs, constructed languages. Uh, most people have heard of Esperanto, but there are hundreds of them, and created for all kinds of purposes. Some of them for sort of what are called art langs for fictional worlds, so things like Klingon in Star Trek. Some of them are there to to be what's kind of auxiliary languages, like Esperanto and, and an older attempt called Volopuk. And there are also ones that are uh, created as a way of investigating a, a, a linguistic principle. So there's a language called uh, uh, Logban, which is a su- successor to Logland, which is designed to be uh, deliberately as rational as possible. There's another language called Ithquil, which is designed to be as condensed as possible. It has something like 96 noun cases, and nobody, including its inventor, can actually speak fluently because it's so complex. So I got translations into to all those languages, also other languages that are designed as, as kind of historical what-ifs. So there's one I've got in the book called New Norn. Norn was the version of Old Norse that was spoken in the Shetland and Orkney Islands till it died out a few centuries ago. So we have fragmentary information of it. And New Norn is basically designed to test the principle, okay, if Norn had continued, continued evolving, what would Norn sound like now? So I have translations into all of that. And I got really interested in conlagging. I read a, there's an amazing book by a guy called David Peterson who created the Dothraki language in Game of Thrones amongst others. Called the art of language creation, and it shows how if you do it right, it's an incredibly difficult and extraordinary and uh, thoughtful sort of task. And I saw, I'd love to. I read that book and I thought, I'd love to do this. I will never do this, <laughs> right? It's just too much, too big, uh, too big a project, too complex a project, too intimidating a project. But I thought. What if I had a go creating enough of a language just to translate the warning message and absolutely nothing else and do it from just basically do it as I went along? And the, the idea was slightly jokey. It's sort of like a half-assed approach to language creation. But it did have a kind of logic to it. I, I mean, it's just, it, my language is probably terrible from the from a con-lagging perspective. But it is grammatical. <laughs> it does have as much grammar as it needs to have. I based it on my knowledge of Hebrew, uh, uh, well, which is a language that's based around roots, um, triconsonantal roots. Um, in this case, in my language, it was based on, on on a three-letter root that is vowel consonant vowel. So it's completely different from Hebrew, but the principle of the root is there. And I also combined it with my limited knowledge of. Finnish, which is a an agglutinating language, which, which means you pile up sussex, suffixes and prefixes on it to create these very long words. So it's based on this sort of limited knowledge of languages, and uh, I, it, it works. It works. It may not be a language that anyone would ever speak because it's too it's probably unpronounceable in many ways. In fact, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Um, but it's the proof of it was, and this was a genuine surprise, although people who read the book might be sceptical of it, I found that after I translated it, I could write new things in it because of the way the the, the, the principles of the language works. So I could actually write in it, uh, read this book, right? Uh, or um, because I could create the noun book from the verb read according to the principles of this language and that taught me something which is that there is really no such thing as a limited language that is entirely under your control even if you create something for your own purposes something escapes and that's something I knew intellectually but actually doing it for yourself means that sort of lesson hits a bit harder I think
1: Language always finds a way, right?
0: Yeah, it does. It, it does, and that's you know, and and that's one of the other messages of the book, which is that even languages that you didn't think would be able to translate a message like this could actually do it with a bit of imagination. So, for example, this um, this Aboriginal language, Australian Aboriginal language, that's currently being uh, uh, revived it doesn't have a word for toy or it didn't have a word for toy so in the revived version they just put in the word toy <laughs> so language finds a way that's how you do it you just put in if you don't have a word you take an English word and why not I mean there are other examples of that that are much more uh, complex and perhaps a little bit more elegant but it's always possible to do it and it's also paradoxically Some of the languages that found it easier to do this were actually ancient languages because ancient languages were written initially for very official purposes uh, and sometimes to even issue warnings. So whilst a language like uh, biblical Hebrew doesn't necessarily have a word for toy, uh, it certainly works very well at communicating forbidding authority. Uh, whereas languages that have never been used for official written purposes or haven't been written down, um, sort of uh, Creoles, for example, sometimes find it a lot more difficult to actually do it. But they, even they find a way as well, because the language will always find a way.
1: Yeah, no, there's a fascinating insight into why a language might not have a toy or why it might be better at warning stuff, but <laughs> perhaps a discussion for another time. Indeed. Um, <laughs> So the final question on the book is, is probably the obvious one. Are there any plans in the footing to have it translated?
0: Um, well, I do have an agent who has been uh, touting it around for translation, which I would love. Uh, but he also agreed with me. Um, he said, I said, if there's a language for which, which has a very small market, could I give away the right, the translation rights for free into that language? And he said, "Yeah, that's absolutely fine." So I have approached publishers in some very small languages and um, had a little bit of in- interest, but haven't managed to close the deal just yet, unfortunately. Um, for economic reasons, you know, like I went to a Faroese publisher he went away and had a look at the book said, I love this. This is great. I'd love to do it. But we've got a minuscule market. And even if you give us the rights for free, they've still got to publish the book. You know, the translation rights is only the start of it. So we'll see. I don't know quite how you translate this book. I certainly would want to do it. <laughs> It'd be really, really difficult.
1: Well, good luck with, um, with, with, with that. Well, Keith, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before you go... Would you like to tell us what you're working on now?
0: Um, It's something completely different. I have another book coming out in April, which is a collaboration with a photographer on uh, a collection of portraits of British Jews showing off the diversity of British Jewry. It's not about Kinder Surprise Eggs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Keith, that sounds like a great project and I look forward to reading it. I want to thank you for being on the show today. And I really enjoyed our fascinating discussion. And take care.
0: Thanks very much.